Imagine a world before the internet. Now, I'm sure many people listening can remember their days before the internet. I, for one, cannot. It seems every single function of society, if you if 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 you want to get involved with the with a worldwide market, with a worldwide economy, if you want to be a productive member of society, attain your goals, whatever that may be, strive for something, uh, to live now within a global community means, in one way or another, interacting with the internet. And I, I think this, 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 uh, this, this memory of the life before the internet uh, will slowly fade out. It will grow farther and farther, just on on the human condition. You know, as the generations grow, it's like uh, you know, imagining life before the 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 invention of the wheel, <laughs> right? I have a hunch that um, virtual reality will will follow the same suit. It will be very difficult to imagine what life was like before virtual reality. I would imagine within 20 years, 30 years, we'll be, we'll be thinking back. So we're going to take a look back on the, um, the history, the, the roots of virtual reality. It, it goes way farther back than, I'm, than I was aware of. In fact, it's uh, the 1800s we're going back to, 1838. A man by the name of Sir Charles Wheatstone was the first to describe stereopsis. From the Greek, uh, stereo, meaning solid. Opsis, meaning sight. It's a term that's uh, most often used to refer to the perception of depth and three-dimensional structure obtained on the basis of visual information. So here we do. Here we, here we have this guy from 1838, Sir Charles Wheatstone. And imagine this, you know, 18, 1800s. What do they have back then? Like, uh, they got, they got the flu. Like that's like one of their main inventions back then. <laughs> Literally, that's all they have is, is the flu and, um, and various top hats. And here you have, uh, Sir Charles Wheatstone walking up saying, we can take a mirror and create a stereoscope. So his research demonstrated that the brain combines two photographs, one eye viewing each of the same object taken from different points to make the image appear to have a sense of depth and immersion. Three, dimension. It used a pair of mirrors at 45 degree angles to the user's eyes, each reflecting a picture located off to the side. So you have basically two sides, two pictures on the left or right side. In the middle, you have a mirror with the angling correctly lined up to the two pictures as well as sort of a, a viewing area for the head. The Wheatstone Mirror Stereoscope. Fast forwarding to 100 years later, uh, the American science fiction writer Stanley Weinbaum presents a fictional model for VR in his short story, Pygmalion's Spectacles. So basically in the story, the main character meets a professor who invented a pair of goggles which enabled a movie that gives one sight and sound, taste, smell, and touch. The characters in the story they speak to characters and they reply 
And the story is all about you. You are in it. Pygmalion's Spectacles by Stanley G. Weinbaum. Eerily similar to our current video games. Eerily similar <laughs> to Half-Life Alex, To Skyrim. To really any video game. We are the character. We are, we are no longer observing the character. We are the character. Of course, there's no taste, smell, and, and there's some touch. And that's a, that's a, that's an interesting aspect. I think um, it's like the the science fiction writers, the the fiction writers get these transmissions, these ideas, <laughs> and um, sooner or later, it seems those ideas um, then actually manifest into reality. So that's where the phrase "truth is stranger than fiction" reigns true all today. Fast forwarding another 20 years, 1956, cinematographer Morton Heilig creates the Sensorama. This is the first VR machine patented in 1962. So this is, this is sort of the first machine that actually, that actually gets the VR title, the virtual reality title. And it's because it, it actually combines all of the senses. You know, it had, it had full-color uh, video, it had audio, it had vibrations, smell, atmospheric effects. You got wind blowing in your face. And it's actually this, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a booth. So imagine, um, you know, sometimes I like, uh, you know, like a, 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 a classic brick-and-mortar arcade, right? You have these, you have these booths, uh, like a photo booth, right? You're sitting in it, you put your head into... It looks like a box. And then I imagine um, in the back you can, uh, they would have the, the, the machine operator kind of refill in the different scents. And um, of course it had to be plugged in to the wall. I mean, it's, it is a big device. It's, it's, it's looking about like a refrigerator size there. So it's a refrigerator sized VR device. And that is, that is virtual reality in its term. It's, it's, it's not reality, it's simulating reality in a virtual way. Sensorama. Now this was, unfortunately for, for Heilig, a um, commercial failure. It, uh, it did appear at some, um, some amusement parks. Unfortunately, just the, the, the absolute size of it, the upkeep, the cost, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't viable for him. But, you know, nevertheless, he, he, he sort of, uh, he was there for it. He laid the foundations, he built it. The Sensorama. Fast forwarding another couple years. Same guy, Morton Heilig out here. He patents the Telesphere mask, which is still in the same vein of, of virtual reality, but, you know, he's, 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 he's starting to, he's starting to kind of, you know, make it smaller. It's a, it's a head-mounted display, an HMD. So this provided stereoscopic 3D images, wide vision, stereo sound. Of course, there's no motion tracking, so you know, you're not moving your head and, and moving around the scene. It's more of a picture viewer, a personal picture viewer, if you will. I think here, around the 1960s, is where we start seeing 
for lack of better terms, the collective consciousness start to attach itself to the concept of VR. VR is, is starting to to sprout up, not just in Heilig's patents, but also by two uh, engineers, Comey and Brian. They created something called the Headsight, which was the first motion tracking HMD. So basically it had built-in video screens for each eye and a head tracking system. Apparently this wasn't used for virtual reality. It was uh, developed for military applications, allowing them to remotely look at hazardous situations. So essentially they had a remote camera imitating the head movement so the user could look around the setting. So sort of the user is located in one space with the head-mounted display, they're moving their head, and in another place, you have a camera that is also moving in sync with the head movements. So still in 1960s, 1965, we have Ivan Sutherland, a computer scientist, presenting his vision of the ultimate display. Uh, I'm going to read a short excerpt um, written by Ivan E. Sutherland in 1965. We live in a physical world whose properties we have come to know well through long familiarity. We sense an involvement with the physical world which gives us the ability to predict its properties well. For example, we can predict where objects will fall, how well-known shapes look from other angles, and how much force is required to push objects against friction. We lack corresponding familiarity with the forces on charged particles, forces in non-uniform fields, the effects of non-projective geometric transformations, high inertia, low friction motion. A display connected to a digital computer gives us a chance to gain familiarity with concepts not realizable in the physical world. It is a looking glass into a mathematical wonderland. I think this statement reigns all too true today. It is a looking glass into that which is not possible. Ivan Sutherland presents this with the proposition that the user inside of this HMD should be able to interact with objects. Conceptualizing computer hardware to form the virtual world to keep it functioning in real time I can't, I can't imagine having these concepts floating around in the head and not being able to manifest them. It's like today, you know, I think we are very lucky to be alive in the time where you have a game idea, you have an idea for a, for a story that, that you want to tell or a game that you want to play. You load up the phone, load up the computer, load up the headset, Click a button and it's right there. But back then, these guys were like right on the precipice. Almost there. Not quite there. Laying the foundations. It almost makes you wonder what foundations are being laid now. What things are we almost on the precipice of? In which we are not. within yet. Another quote from Ivan. The ultimate display would, of course, be a room within which the computer can control the existence of matter. Not unlike VR chat. A chair displayed in such a room would be good enough to sit in. Handcuffs displayed in such a room would be confining. 
and a bullet displayed in such a room would be fatal. With appropriate programming, such a display could literally be the wonderland into which Alice walked. Not far off <laughs> what we currently have. A wonderland. Though the wonderland does get boring. At times. I mean, how many Steam games <laughs> do I have in my library that I have not played? <laughs> Nineteen sixty-eight, same guy Sutherland with his student Bob Sproul creates the first virtual reality HMD named the Sword of Democles. Sounds like a a chapter in a epic medieval fantasy written in the nineteen eighties. The Sword of Democles. Democles referring to a character who appears in the anecdote an allusion to the imminent and ever-present peril faced by those in positions of power. Interesting name for a virtual reality device. Perhaps they were shrouding inclinations of the dark side that this technology could bring, as well as the good. So this head-mounted display they had connected to a computer rather than a camera basically showed wireframe-type shapes, right? So that it, it changed perspective when the user moved their head. And uh, it was never fully developed beyond a lab project because it was too heavy. But nonetheless, laying the foundations. 1969, Myron Kroger. Computer artist develops a succession of artificial reality experiences using computers and video systems. He creates computer-generated environments that respond to the people in it. These projects lead to the video place technology. The video place technology is a 2D system, a 2D video in which the user can sort of interact with it. So they are pointing to different letters on the screen and they are typing. This is video place developed in the 19, uh, late 1960s through the 1980s by Myron Kroger. Then moving on to 1972, GE, the corporation overlords at General Electric, builds a computerized flight simulator which features a 180-degree field of vision by using three screens surrounding the cockpit. 1977, we have Aspen Movie Map, created by MIT. This program enabled users to virtually wander through Aspen City in Colorado, like with Google Street View. So this one didn't specifically use HMDs, but it was the use of first-person interactivity through photographs from a car driving around the city. So really, almost like a, yeah, like a very early form of Google Street View. Sort of the, the public's first interaction with being transported to another place while still remaining in one place. I think that that concept of literally going somewhere else going to a movie theater, going to a completely different universe while still remaining in your living room is starting to, 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 to be a little more uh, accessible now with the advent of you know, the Oculus Quest, other HMDs. But back then, 1977, I'm sure if you would have uh, talked about that concept, they would have said, get out of here, you're crazy. 1979, McDonnell Douglas Corporation integrates VR into an HMD. 
calling it the Vital Helmet. Again, for military use. A lot of these technologies, military use. Makes sense. A lot of money. A country would fund development. Still does fund development. To be the best, you know, you gotta be at the cutting edge. I can't imagine the technology that is hidden away in the depths. But what they had was a head tracker in the HMD which followed the pilot's eye movements to match computer-generated images and for pilot training. Moving on to the, the wonderful 80s now. 1982, the Sire gloves, invented by Sandin and Defonti. These gloves were the first wired gloves. They monitored hand movements by using light emitters and photocells in the gloves' fingers. So essentially, when the user moved their fingers, the amount of light hitting the photocell varied, which then converted the finger movements into electrical signals, considered to be the beginning of gesture recognition. Again, interaction. It's interesting to see this inkling, the beginning of more natural interaction with the, the virtual dimension. Nineteen eighty-five, Jaron Lanier and Thomas Zimmerman founded VPL Research, and uh, VPL was really kind of the first company to develop and commercially sell VR goggles and gloves, which doesn't look too far off from current uh, day HMDs. I think this is kind of the first design in which you had an LCD display, um, you know, kind of placed a couple inches in front of the eyes small enough that it can fit into goggles onto the headset. They also had a, something like the data glove, which is uh, sort of the way they would interact with the virtual world inside. And funny enough, their HMD is called the iPhone. That's E-Y-E-P-H-O-N-E. -E. And the audiosphere. That's one thing I miss about, uh, about the 80s, or at least what I can read about the 80s, was not alive in that time. The naming, I will give it to them, they, they named things a lot cooler. Data Glove, iPhone HMD, the Audiosphere, way cooler than the, than the Rift, <laughs> than the Quest. Hey man, you want to go on the Quest? Want to go on the Valve Index? You wanna wanna play a wanna play a universe simulation on the index? No, that's kinda cool. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Nineteen eighty nine, Scott Foster founds Crystal River Engineering after receiving a contract from NASA to develop the audio element of the virtual environment workstation project or VIEW for short, which was a VR training simulator for astronauts. Through this company, real-time binaural 3D audio processing was developed. This, of course, comes with the iconic picture. Apparently, uh, with this uh, kind of virtual environment workstation project by NASA, Mattel, the toy manufacturer, Mattel Inc., released the Power Glove which was based on VPL's data glove. Now, the Power Glove was a controller accessory for the Nintendo Entertainment System, but it never took off. Difficult to use. 
Moving on to the uh, wonderful 90s, Jonathan Woldern exhibited virtuality of VR arcade machine at the Computer Graphics 90 exhibition in London. Seems like uh, the 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 term virtual VR virtuality was in the uh, public consciousness. In 1991, you had Antonio Medina, a NASA scientist, designing a VR system to drive the Mars robot rover from Earth in supposed real-time, despite the uh, signal delays between the planets. The system was called the Computer Simulated Teleo Operation. That same group that developed this uh, later launched Virtuality. Again, the VR arcade machines where gamers could play in a 3D gaming world. Some iconic pictures from these got these big old headsets on these uh, spaceship-looking things, almost like a like a pod a pod racer, right there. So these virtuality pods featured VR headsets and real-time immersive stereoscopic 3D images. Some of the machines could uh, be networked together for multiplayer games. Eventually, some of the very popular arcade games like Pac-Man had actual VR versions, which raises the question. Why do we not have Pac-Man VR today? So imagine you're, you know what, a kid in the 90s, coming home from a, from a, from a nice long day at school, drinking your high C, your fruit gushers, and your mom says, hey, let's go, let's go to the arcade for the, for the evening. It's a nice end of the week, Friday you go to the arcade, you load up into the the uh, virtuality pod, and you jump into freaking Pac-Man. It's got to be the most thrilling experience. Looking back, you know, it's rudimentary. 10 FPS, if that, 15 FPS. But back then, I imagine that was a mind-blowing experience to, to play a game on a 2D screen for your entire life and to jump into it and actually experience it would be mind-blowing. And still is mind-blowing. I remember the first time jumping into Skyrim VR is an amazing experience, especially if you've played it on the flat screen. The first time jumping into Tilt Brush, realizing you can draw in three dimensions now. 1994, we have Sega releasing Sega VR1, a motion simulator arcade machine. A lot of, uh, a lot of VR technology in the brick-and-mortar arcade places, which makes sense. I mean, I mean, it was around 1989 that the Game Boy, the first portable handheld gaming system, was released. So, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to get? You're going to get an expensive VR headset or are you going to get the, the Game Boy? I, for one, would go for the Game Boy. So it's natural that the, the VR technology would be saved for the arcades. But we do have the first attempt by a larger company, Nintendo, to create a VR device that is going straight for the uh, consumer market, trying to get VR into the homes. Of course, talking about the Virtual Boy, a console which played 3D monochrome video. It was the first portable console to display 3D graphics. But uh, the idea was there, the execution was a failure. The uh, the lack of color graphics, lack of software support, wasn't comfortable, and uh, was discontinued a year later. 
But the foundation was laid. I like to use the analogy of a tree. It's like uh, this was uh, this was uh, an attempt to plant a tree into the ground. Just didn't take root. We also had a couple other uh, affordable home VR headsets. The Virtual I.O. released by Eyeglasses. Here's a here's a commercial from the Virtual I.O. Finally made it to the mainstream thanks to a new product called Virtual Eyeglasses. Using the new product, consumers are able to explore virtual reality environments without leaving the comforts of the home or office. When connected to a personal computer, virtual eyeglasses bring a real-life feel to gaming. This is accomplished using stereoscopic 3D displays. Epic gamer moment. We also had the VFX1 headgear released by Forte, which was, uh, I actually really like the design of this one, this this kind of actually goes more around the head it almost looks like a like a helmet has the uh the the speakers built into it the vfx1 headgear marketed uh seems seems to be marketed more towards the gamers and we had 1997 uh here in uh, georgia tech and emory university here in atlanta researchers used vr to create war zone scenarios for veterans receiving exposure therapy for ptsd this was known as Virtual Vietnam. You have sort of a, um, a, a helicopter environment, as well as an open field environment. And we have 2007 with Google introducing Street View. Now I'm including this because, in a way, it is virtual reality. You know, you have um, that idea of capturing another environment and bringing it into the computer. Bringing it to the individual that loads it up. Fast forwarding to 2012, you have Palmer Lucky launching the Kickstarter for the Oculus Rift, raising 2.4 million, later of course bought by the old Bookface for a short billion plus dollars. Simultaneously though, you have Valve, creators of games such as Portal, Half-Life, and the Steam video game marketplace also uh, doing a lot of research into VR so this is an excerpt from uh, one of their um, galleries showcasing some technology for positional tracking early in our exploration of wearable displays we realized there was a lack of good tracking systems so we developed the system and ended up using it on mainly subsequent VR experiments including the room demo. The system uses head-mounted machine vision cameras pointed at markers using the April tag format. The resulting images are processed using standard machine vision techniques to get a pose. Over the years, these markers have become a regular feature in our office. As part of our early experiments into building VR, we decided to port one of our existing games to VR. Team Fortress 2 was the obvious choice because of its frequent update schedule. After about six months of work, we shipped VR support as a beta in March of 2013. So we're seeing this uprise in VR development, almost a collective consciousness again in the 2010s, early 2010s with, uh, of course, Oculus, Valve, and then uh, 2015, the rumors start happening, the, the possibilities, the, the, the murmurs of VR, at least in the... Uh, the press seems uh, they're always a little bit behind. 
We have the Wall Street Journal starting to talk about the VR ups and downs on the stock market, whatever that means. The BBC, of course, creating a 360-degree video, implementing that, at least trying to, into their media empire. Different companies, you know, latching onto VR. Um, interesting enough, a lot of these companies not using VR anymore. I think, uh, I think they don't know what to do with it yet. And that's fair. I, I imagine what we'll see is, and what we are seeing is, is the, is the startups that really know VR. I think it becomes harder for the, the larger companies. Because imagine this, you're, 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 you're in a company, an established company. They have their way of doing things. To introduce VR as something more than a gimmick is, is difficult. But I think that is changing, has changed with, uh, with, with more VR. So then 2016, hundreds of companies are now developing VR, mainly uh, HTC, Oculus, of course, releasing their, their uh, flagship headsets, which I'm sure is where a lot of people listening now, I, I know I got into VR around this time as well. And uh, that's where we are now. It's an interesting time. And, and, and thinking back to what the internet was, what life was, rather, before the internet, I think we'll, we'll, we'll give some clues as to what VR life will be like when it becomes widespread. That is to say, there's no way to predict the consequences, the effects that a technology will have on a society, have on the world as it's developed. I think that was kind of my, uh, my early worry about the technology is like, what is the downside to this? It's such a cool thing, you know? There's got to be a downside. And there are, for sure. It's interesting to see what the, the early people working on VR thought about the potential downsides of it. I've heard it be described as a way to more easily brainwash people because you are essentially communicating with all of the senses now. But I, I don't know. I think, um, I think social media, for all of the negativity that it brings, I think it's, it has at least brought to the forefront the concept of being manipulated by the algorithm to think one thing. And so I would hope that with more awareness of that, we can avoid many of the same pitfalls with, with VR. Because if you think, okay, you have a social network in VR, I, for one, am not going to go in a social network controlled by Facebook <laughs> in VR. <laughs> I'm just not going to use it, you know? So when I think to a potential brainwash scenario in VR, I, I, don't, I don't see... It being a company, I think it will. Um, I think it will be more individual groups using a platform, which isn't too far off from reality. I mean, you have cults, you have belief systems, dogmas, lies, and you have truth. You have all of these things working together and working against each other <laughs> in the physical world, and I think we'll have all of these things working together and working against each other in the virtual world.
Hey folks, taking a listen to a listener call that was brought in by Francie. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask a question. So what made you start searching and getting into virtual reality? Uh, also sending highs from Croatia. Yeah, bye. Croatia. Digging it, man. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the question, Francie. It was a it was a, a a combination of an interest in video games and animation. There was a company started by Oculus, or at least um, kind of nurtured by Oculus back in the early days, funded by Oculus rather, called uh, the Oculus Story Studio, and uh, it was a couple uh, a couple directors, creators, artists, people more traditionally based in the animation industry. So Pixar, DreamWorks. And they were using VR to tell these kind of hybrid, like, animated film-type stories. When it starts, you're in Henry's home. You sit right there where Henry lives. His house takes advantage of the whole new dimension in virtual reality, where you can discover his bedroom down there, you can peek into the kitchen and discover, you know, how he's cooking his cake. Henry is our second movie, and it's really the first character in virtual reality. And I, I just figured this is the future of storytelling. As a kid, if I could, if I could actually go into an episode of SpongeBob, <laughs> if I could actually go into the movie Up, or go into Game of Thrones, I'm gonna do it. So it was almost like this, uh, I, I specifically remember sitting in my car, eating lunch in the workday, coming across this trailer for this, this film that wasn't actually a film, it's like a video game, half video game thing. Chills in the back of my neck, I'm like, oh, this is, this is, this is a path that I must follow. <laughs> and since then, I've been following that path. Thanks for the question, Francie. Folks, if you'd like to leave your own um, question for the show, uh, please head on over to the virtualexperience.link. All right, folks, I've been uh, I've been running an experiment for the past couple days or a week. I'm a week into the into this now, and that is uh, switching my uh, switching my circadian rhythm to go completely nocturnal. That's right. I'm sure there's a there's a there's a couple listeners that are already nocturnal, so please welcome me into your community with, with open arms. I, I mean no harm to you. <laughs> but it is interesting. It's 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 um I bring it up because I think the the future of an individual working will be fully digital. I think uh I think we're gonna start moving into non centralized companies. Like the office job will be a thing of the past. And we saw a forceful shift of this with, of course, the coronavirus. But I think the, the, the ripples of it, the, the implementations of it into long-term society will be a transition. And I think it will bring some benefits. I mean, I for one, you know, if, if, if you're a, if you're a family person, you're a, you're now able to spend more time with the family at home. 
comes with the with with the uh, sort of negative downside of having to be a little more structured. You know, you have to set aside your own room or set aside your own time space where it's undisturbed or at the very least, you know, having to to go back into the flow and exit the flow to handle home manners and then go back into the flow. But all in all, I think the transition will slowly happen over the next decade. And it's interesting to be in the transition and and to to almost experiment with that transition. Like, how far can you take it? Okay, because now, if if an individual is working from home, they are almost unchained from the normal happenings of society. You're still in society, but you're you're not attached to it. For example, lunch. Generally accepted, eating lunch at around twelve. For most people, right? There's a couple outliers, maybe eat lunch earlier or later, but, you know, it's a general structure, right? But then it's like when you're working from home, you can kind of, you know, go off that. You can skip lunch. You can get real crazy and eat lunch at 12.01, all right? Maybe getting a little too crazy, I don't know. But you get what I'm saying? You can, you can, you can still continue work because it's all virtual. It's all online, for the most part. There's still calls, you know, you gotta you gotta take calls, you gotta answer emails in the in the in the day, but it is it has been it has been a fun experiment to to almost be still within society but detached from it. But still within it. Like I woke up at you know, like six PM. Uh, I usually go on a run. Maybe do some do some nice yoga stretching, you know. Stretch out the body. Enter the vehicle, the the human vehicle again. And meanwhile, I'm, while I'm doing this, everyone else is kind of ending the day. <laughs> and then I'm like eating breakfast, and people are like, you know, out outside barbecuing. And now it's uh, around two thirty a.m. So hey, I'll I'll let you I'll, I'll keep you guys updated on how the experiment goes. Going to be doing a a full documentary as well at the end of the month. And uh, if you are a nocturnal being, I'd love to hear from you. Taking another call from Carl G. What do you think the next step in VR technology will be? Whether an advancement in the next generation of headsets or a new addition to the experience, like haptic suits which have been increasing in the consumer market and how do you think people will like integrate these into gaming medical use education and other areas like that thanks for the question carl i think um i think we're going to see an increase or a decrease rather in the size of headsets i think they're just going to get smaller and smaller until they're like a pair of glasses kind of like maybe a pair of visors even like some cool visors you kind of flip them down Flip them down and you can say, I'm in, like you're in the Matrix. That's, of course, very aesthetic, right? Also, hopefully see some increase in FOV, so we're not looking through like a tube when you put on a headset. You don't have the black circles around your eyes anymore. Increase in resol- resolution, uh, latency, wireless, all that all that fun stuff. Adversely, I think we'll, we'll of course, also see the, the increase in haptic technology, talking about Talk about full-on suits, vests, 
playing like a like a robot space shooter, shooting up some evil robots. When they shoot at you, you're going to feel that, right? But even to me, th those are exciting. Those are cool. It's hardware stuff. What I find more exciting is how developers will utilize that to create new game mechanics. So think back. Think back before the smartphone. Before Steve Jobs released the iPhone. The idea of like swiping with your finger on a tablet to play a video game was like unthinkable. It's like what what do you what is what would that even be, right? I'm of course talking about Fruit Ninja, right? You swipe, you chop. What other game mechanics can we not even think of will be introduced because of VR haptic technology? It's exciting stuff, man. It's exciting to think about. Had a thought the other day. I have basically uh, grown up on the internet, as I'm sure many people listening have. Friends, enemies, loves, friendships, work, relaxation, entertainment, all revolves around the internet. And that's not to say you don't, you know, you shouldn't get out every once in a while, right? I make it a point to take some time every day to not be online. But the interaction, the social interaction, I found most of the time is, is, is uh, through, through the internet. So then we think, okay, earlier, think about a kid, um, maybe it's like 10, right? Playing Minecraft, making friends, having a community that's fully virtual. I think back to a lot of times in my life when I was depressed, my internet friends way back in high school were the ones that brought me out of the ruts. So we have in mammals the, the natural instinct to play, right? To fight, to to rough house, especially for males, right? Now we're seeing that taking place, the, 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 the playground dynamics taking place virtually. And that's exciting to me because then, then we have the development of the individual, the development of the individual's way of communication, what they value, how they make friends, much more accessible. You know, because before it's like, you know, if you want to hang out with friends, mom, can you, can you drive me over to a friend's house? Dad, can you, can you drop me off? Now it's like, click a button, you're there. <laughs> so it's interesting. I, I, um, I'm keeping a, a very, a very watchful eye, just a curious eye on like Gen, the younger, the younger uh, people in Gen Z. Because it's like, what what is it what is it going to be like to have generations fully raised on on the internet, from babies to adults looking at a screen? I think uh, obviously we'll have to put in place things that that keep the balance right. Maybe not. You know, the balance may come naturally. I think it it probably will. 
I know it will. The balance always comes naturally with these things. But if I'm looking to, to, to my own life, my own experience, I can't remember what it was really before the internet. I, my earliest memory of, of using the virtual global connection is like a, like a laptop that we had in the living room. I would play RuneScape on it. You know? Embodying a medieval character. And this character was me. This was me. I was questing in this world. I was avoiding getting killed and losing all my hard-earned coin. But even then, I was sitting, looking at a screen. And now... We are no longer looking at a screen. We are inside of it. How will it affect us? Only time will tell. Last message from a friend of the show, Wyatt, WMan22. I'd like to use this opportunity to thank everybody who mods video games. Uh, you guys are awesome, especially in the VR space, you know, where, where uh, some games just beg to have custom content for them, especially the people who are modding games like Boneworks without any official tools. You guys are awesome. And the, pe the people who were modding Half-Life Alex before uh, Valve even gave us any tools, you, it's amazing. Um, I'd also like to uh, thank the people who make SDKs for users to create content for their games. Today's modders are tomorrow's developers, and you guys are awesome for giving them an opportunity. Thank you. Today's modders are tomorrow's developers. Folks, you've been listening to The Virtual Experience. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you for your messages. If you'd like to get involved with the show, you can head on over to thevirtualexperience.link in your web browser. And hey, I'll see you next week. Peace out.